Section 10 of the Ingoldsby Legends, First Series. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ingoldsby Legends, First Series, by Richard Harris Barham. Section 10. Hos ego versiculos feci, tulit alter honoris, Virgil. I wrote the lines, owned them, he told stories. Thomas Ingoldsby. Mrs. Botherby's Story. The Leech of Folkestone. Reader, were you ever bewitched? I do not mean by a white wench's black eye, or by love potions imbibed from a ruby lip, but were you ever really and bona fide bewitched, in the true Matthew Hopkins sense of the word? Did you ever, for instance, find yourself from head to heel one vast complication of cramps, or burst out into sudorific exudation? like a cold thaw, with the thermometer at zero. Were your eyes ever turned upside down, exhibiting nothing but their whites? Did you ever vomit a paper of crooked pins, or expectorate whitechapel needles? These are genuine and undoubted marks of possession, and if you never experienced any of them, why, happy man be his dole. Yet such things have been, Yea, we are assured, and that on no mean authority, still are. The world, according to the best geographers, is divided into Europe, Asia, Africa, America, and Romney Marsh. In this last-named and fifth quarter of the globe, a witch may still be occasionally discovered in favourable, i.e. stormy, seasons, weathering dungeness point in an eggshell, or careering on her broomstick over dim church wall. A cow may yet be sometimes seen galloping like mad, with tail erect, and an old pair of breeches on her horns, an unerring guide to the door of the crone whose magic arts have drained her udder. I do not, however, remember to have heard that any conjurer has of late been detected in the district. Not many miles removed from the verge of this recondite region stands a collection of houses which its maligners call a fishing town, and its well-wishers a watering place. A limb of one of the sink ports it has, or lately had, a corporation of its own, and has been thought considerable enough to give a second title to a noble family. Rome stood on seven hills. Folkestone seems to have been built upon seventy. Its streets, lanes, and alleys, fanciful distinctions without much real difference, are agreeable enough to persons who do not mind running up and down stairs, and the only inconvenience at all felt by such of its inhabitants as are not asthmatic is when some heedless urchin tumbles down a chimney, or an impertinent pedestrian peeps into a garret window. At the eastern extremity of the town, on the sea beach, and scarcely above high water mark, stood, in the good old times, a row of houses then denominated Frog Hole. Modern refinement subsequently euphonized the name into East Street, but what's in a name? The encroachments of ocean 
have long since levelled all in one common ruin here in the early part of the seventeenth century flourished in somewhat doubtful reputation but comparative opulence a compounder of medicines one master erasmus buckthorn the effluvia of whose drugs from within mingling agreeably with the ancient and fish-like smells from without wafted a delicious perfume throughout the neighbourhood at seven of the clock on the morning when mrs botherby's narrative commences a stout suffolk punch about thirteen hands and a half in height was slowly led up and down before the door of the pharmacopolist by a lean and withered lad whose appearance warranted an opinion pretty generally expressed that his master found him as useful in experimentalizing as in household drudgery and that for every pound avoirdupois of solid meat he swallowed at the least two pounds troy weight of chemicals and galenicals as the town clock struck the quarter master buckthorn emerged from his laboratory and putting the key carefully into his pocket mounted the sure-footed cob aforesaid and proceeded up and down the acclivities and declivities of the town with the gravity due to his station and profession when he reached the open country his pace was increased to a sedate canter which in somewhat more than half an hour brought the horse and his rider in front of a handsome and substantial mansion the numerous gable ends and bayed windows of which bespoke the owner a man of worship and one well-to-do in the world how now hodge gardener quoth the leech scarcely drawing bit for punch seemed to be aware that he had reached his destination and paused of his own accord how now man how fares thine employer worthy master marsh how hath he done how hath he slept my potion hath done its office ha alack ill at ease worthy sir ill at ease returned the hind his honour is up and stirring but he hath rested none and complaineth that the same gnawing pain devoureth as it were his very vitals in sooth he is ill at ease morrow doctor interrupted a voice from a casement opening on the lawn good morrow i have looked for longed for thy coming this hour and more enter at once the pasty and tankard are impatient for thine attack marry heaven forbid that i should balk their fancy quoth the leech sotto voce as abandoning the bridle to honest hodge he dismounted and followed a buxom-looking handmaiden into the breakfast parlour there at the head of his well-furnished board sat master thomas marsh of marston hall a yeoman well respected in his degree one of that sturdy and sterling class which taking rank immediately below the esquire a title in its origin purely military occupied in the wealthier counties the position in society now filled by the country gentleman he was one of those of whom the proverb ran a knight of kales a gentleman of wales and a laird of the north country 
a yeoman of kent with his yearly rent will buy them out all three a cold sirloin big enough to frighten a frenchman filled the place of honour counterchecked by a game pie of no stinted dimensions while a silver flagon of humming bub viz ale strong enough to blow a man's beaver off smiled opposite in treacherous amenity the sideboard groaned beneath sundry massive cups and waiters of the purest silver while the huge skull of a fallow deer with its branching horns frowned majestically above all spoke of affluence of comfort all save the master whose restless eye and feverish look hinted but too plainly the severest mental or bodily disorder by the side of the proprietor of the mansion sat his consort a lady now past the bloom of youth yet still retaining many of its charms the clear olive of her complexion and the darkness of her andalusian eye at once betrayed her foreign origin in fact her lord and master as husbands were even then by a legal fiction denominated had taken her to his bosom in a foreign country the cadet of his family master thomas marsh had early in life been engaged in commerce in the pursuit of his vocation he had visited antwerp hamburg and most of the hans towns and had already formed a tender connection with the orphan offspring of one of old alva's officers when the unexpected deaths of one immediate and two presumptive heirs placed him next in succession to the family acres he married and brought home his bride who by the decease of the venerable possessor heartbroken at the loss of his elder children became eventually lady of marston hall it has been said that she was beautiful yet was her beauty of a character that operates on the fancy more than the affections she was one to be admired rather than loved the proud curl of her lip the firmness of her tread her arched brow and stately carriage showed the decision not to say haughtiness of her soul while her glances whether lightening with anger or melting in extreme softness betrayed the existence of passions as intense in kind as opposite in quality she rose as erasmus entered the parlour and bestowing on him a look fraught with meaning quitted the room leaving him in unrestrained communication with his patient for george master buckthorne exclaimed the latter as the leech drew near i will know more of your pharmacy burn burn gnaw gnaw i had as lief the foul fiend were in my gizzard as one of your drugs tell me in the devil's name what is the matter with me thus conjured the practitioner paused and even turned somewhat pale there was a perceptible faltering in his voice as evading the question he asked what say your other physicians dr fizz says it is wind dr fuzz says it is water and dr buzz says it is something between wind and water they are all of them wrong said erasmus buckthorne 
truly i think so returned the patient they are manifest asses but you good leech you are a horse of another colour the world talks loudly of your learning your skill and cunning in arts the most abstruse nay sooth to say some look coldly on you therefore and stickle not to aver that you are cater cousin with beelzebub himself it is ever the fate of science murmured the professor to be maligned by the ignorant and superstitious but a truce with such folly let me examine your palate master marsh thrust out a tongue long clear and red as beetroot there is nothing wrong there said the leech your wrist no the pulse is firm and regular the skin cool and temperate sir there is nothing the matter with you nothing the matter with me sir potecary but i tell you there is the matter with me much the matter with me why is it that something seems ever gnawing at my heart-strings whence this pain in the region of the liver why is it that i sleep not o nights rest not o days why you are fidgety master marsh said the doctor master marsh's brow grew dark he half rose from his seat supported himself by both hands on the arms of his elbow-chair and in accents of mingled anger and astonishment repeated the word fidgety ay fidgety returned the doctor calmly tut man there is naught ails thee save thine own overweening fancies take less of food more air put aside thy flagon call for thy horse be boot and saddle the word why hast thou not youth i have said the patient wealth and a fair domain granted quoth marsh cheerily and a fair wife yea was the response but in a tone something less satisfied then arouse thee man shake off this fantasy betake thyself to thy lawful occasions use thy good hap follow thy pleasures and think no more of these fancied ailments but i tell you master mine these ailments are not fancied i lose my rest i loathe my food my doublet sits loosely on me these racking pains my wife too when i meet her gaze the cold sweat stands on my forehead and i could almost think marsh paused abruptly mused a while then added looking steadily at his visitor these things are not right they pass the common master erasmus buckthorn a slight shade crossed the brow of the leech but its passage was momentary his features softened to a smile in which pity seemed slightly blended with contempt have done with such follies master marsh you are well and you would but think so ride i say hunt shoot do anything disperse these melancholic humours and become yourself again well i will do your bidding said marsh thoughtfully it may be so and yet but i will do your bidding master cobb of brentsit writes me that he hath a score or two of fat ewes to be sold a pennyworth i had thought to have sent ralph looker but i will essay to go myself ho there saddle me the brown mare 
and bid Ralph be ready to attend me on the gelding. An expression of pain contracted the features of Master Marsh as he rose and slowly quitted the apartment to prepare for his journey, while the leech, having bidden him farewell, vanished through an opposite door and betook himself to the private boudoir of the fair mistress of Marston, muttering as he went a quotation from a then newly published play, not Poppy nor Mandragora, nor all the drowsy syrups of the world, shall ever medicine thee to that sweet sleep which thou ownst yesterday. Of what passed at this interview between the Folkestone doctor and the fair Spaniard, Mrs. Botherby declares she could never obtain any satisfactory elucidation. Not that tradition is silent on the subject, quite the contrary. It is the abundance, not paucity, of the materials she supplies, and the consequent embarrassment of selection, that makes the difficulty. Some have averred that the leech, whose character, as has been before hinted, was more than threadbare, employed his time in teaching her the mode of administering certain noxious compounds, the unconscious partaker whereof would pine and die so slowly and gradually as to defy suspicion. Others there were who affirmed that Lucifer himself was then and there raised in propria persona, with all his terrible attributes of horn and hoof. In support of this assertion, they adduce the testimony of the aforesaid buxom housemaid, who protested that the hall smelt that evening like a manufactory of matches. All, however, seemed to agree that the confabulation, whether human or infernal, was conducted with profound secrecy, and protracted to a considerable length, that its object, as far as could be divined, meant anything but good to the head of the family, that the lady, moreover, was heartily tired of her husband, and that, in the event of his removal by disease or casualty, Master Erasmus Buckthorn, albeit a great philosophist, would have no violent objection to throw physic to the dogs, and exchange his laboratory for the estate of Marston, its livestock included. Some, too, have inferred that to him did Madame Isabel seriously incline, while others have thought, induced perhaps by subsequent events, that she was merely using him for her purposes, that one Jose, a tall, bright-eyed, hook-nosed stripling from her native land, was a personage not unlikely to put a spoke in the doctor's wheel, and that should such a chance arise, the sage, wise as he was, would, after all, run no slight risk of being bamboozled. Master Jose was a youth well-favoured and comely to look upon. His office was that of page to the dame, an office which, after long remaining in abeyance, has been of late years revived, as may well be seen in the persons of sundry smart hobbledehoys now constantly to be met with on staircases and in boudoirs, clad for the most part in garments fitted tightly to the shape, the lower moiety adorned with a broad stripe of crimson or silver lace, 
and the upper with what the first wit of our times has described as a favourable eruption of buttons. The precise duties of this employment have never, as far as we have heard, been accurately defined. The perfuming a handkerchief, the combing a lapdog, and the occasional presentation of a sippet-shaped billet doux are, and always have been, among them. But these a young gentleman, standing five foot ten, and aged nineteen, last grass, might well be supposed to have outgrown. Jose, however, kept his place, perhaps because he was not fit for any other. To the conference between his mistress and the physician he had not been admitted. His post was to keep watch and ward in the ante-room, and when the interview was concluded, he attended the lady and her visitor as far as the courtyard, where he held, with all due respect, the stirrup for the latter, as he once more resumed his position on the back of Punch. Who is it that says, little pitchers have large ears? Some deep metaphysician of the potteries, who might have added that they also have quick eyes, and sometimes silent tongues. There was a little metaphorical piece of crockery of this class, who screened by a huge elbow chair, had sat a quiet and unobserved spectator to the whole proceedings between her mamma and Master Erasmus Buckthorne. This was Miss Marion Marsh, a rosy-cheeked, laughter-loving imp of some six years old, but one who could be mute as a mouse when the fit was on her. A handsome and highly polished cabinet of the darkest ebony occupied a recess at one end of the apartment. This had long been a great subject of speculation to little Miss. Her curiosity, however, had always been repelled, nor had all her coaxing ever won her an inspection of the thousand and one pretty things which its recesses no doubt contained. On this occasion it was unlocked, and Marian was about to rush forward in eager anticipation of a peep at its interior, when child as she was, the reflection struck her that she would stand a better chance of carrying her point by remaining perdu. Fortune for once favoured her. She crouched closer than before, and saw her mother take something from one of the drawers, which she handed over to the leech. Strange mutterings followed, and words whose sound was foreign to her youthful ears. Had she been older, their import, perhaps, might have been equally unknown. After a while there was a pause, and then the lady, as in answer to a requisition from the gentleman, placed in his hand a something which she took from her toilet. The transaction, whatever its nature, seemed now to be complete, and the article was carefully replaced in the drawer from which it had been taken. A long and apparently interesting conversation then took place between the parties, carried on in a low tone. At its termination, Mistress Marsh and Master Erasmus Buckthorne quitted the boudoir together. But the cabinet, aye, that was left unfastened. The folding doors still remained invitingly expanded, the bunch of keys dangling from the lock. In an instant, 
the spoiled child was in a chair. The drawer so recently closed yielded at once to her hand, and her hurried researches were rewarded by the prettiest little waxen doll imaginable. It was a first-rate prize, and Miss lost no time in appropriating it to herself. Long before Madame Marsh had returned to her sanctum, Marion was seated under a laurestinus in the garden, nursing her new baby with the most affectionate solicitude. "'Susan, look here. See what a nasty scratch I've got upon my hand,' said the young lady, when routed out at length from her hiding-place to her noontide meal. "'Yes, miss, this is always the way with you. Mend, mend, mend. Nothing but mend. Scrambling about among the bushes, and tearing your clothes to rags. What with you, and with madam's farthingales and kirtles, a poor bower-maiden has a fine time of it. But I have not torn my clothes, Susan, and it was not the bushes, it was the doll. Only see what a great ugly pin I have pulled out of it. And look, here is another. As she spoke, Marion drew forth one of those extended pieces of black pointed wire, with which, in the days of toupees and pompoons, our foremothers were wont to secure their fly-caps and headgear from the impertinent assaults of Zephyrus and the little breezes. "'And pray, miss, where did you get this pretty doll, as you call it?' asked Susan, turning over the puppet, and viewing it with a scrutinizing eye. "'Mamma gave it me,' said the child. "'This was a fib.' Indeed, quoth the girl thoughtfully, and then, in half soliloquy, and a lower key, Well, I wish I may die if it doesn't look like master. But come to your dinner, miss. Hark, the bell is striking one. Meanwhile, Master Thomas Marsh and his man Ralph were threading the devious paths, then, as now, most pseudonymously dignified by the name of Rhodes that wound between marston hall and the frontier of romney marsh their progress was comparatively slow for though the brown mare was as good a roadster as man might back and the gelding no mean nag of his hands yet the tracts rarely traversed save by the rude wains of the day miry in the bottoms and covered with loose and rolling stones on the higher grounds rendered barely passable the perpetual alternation of hill and valley. The master rode on in pain, and the man in listlessness, although the intercourse between two individuals so situated was much less restrained in those days than might suit the refinement of a later age, little passed approximating to conversation, beyond an occasional and half-stifled groan from the one or a vacant whistle from the other. An hour's riding had brought them among the woods of Acris, and they were about to descend one of those green and leafy lanes, rendered by matted and overarching branches, alike impervious to shower or sunbeam, when a sudden and violent spasm seized on Master Marsh, and nearly caused him to fall from his horse. With some difficulty, he succeeded in dismounting and seating himself by the roadside. Here he remained for a full half-hour in great apparent agony. 
the cold sweat rolled in large round drops adown his clammy forehead. A universal shivering palsied every limb. His eyeballs appeared to be starting from their sockets, and to his attached though dull and heavy serving-man he seemed as one struggling in the pangs of impending dissolution. His groans rose thick and frequent, and the alarmed Ralph was hesitating between his disinclination to leave him and his desire to procure such assistance as one of the few cottages, rarely sprinkled in that wild country, might afford, when, after a long-drawn sigh, his master's features as suddenly relaxed. He declared himself better, the pang had passed away, and to use his own expression, he felt as if a knife had been drawn from out his very heart. With Ralph's assistance, after a while, he again reached his saddle, and though still ill at ease, from a deep-seated and gnawing pain, which ceased not, as he averred, to torment him, the violence of the paroxysm was spent, and it returned no more. Master and man pursued their way with increased speed. As emerging from the wooded defiles, they at length neared the coast. Then, leaving the romantic castle of Saltwood, with its neighbouring town of Hythe a little on their left, they proceeded along the ancient paved causeway, and crossing the old Roman road, or Watling, plunged again into the woods that stretched between Limpne and Ostenhanger. The sun rode high in the heavens, and its meridian blaze was powerfully felt by man and horse, when again quitting their leafy covert, the travellers debouched on the open plain of Aldington Frith, a wide tract of unenclosed country, stretching down to the very borders of the marsh itself. Here it was, in the neighbouring chapelry, the site of which may yet be traced by the curious antiquary, that Elizabeth Barton, the Holy Maid of Kent, had, something less than a hundred years previous to the period of our narrative, commenced that series of supernatural pranks which eventually procured for her head an unenvied elevation upon London Bridge. And though the parish had since enjoyed the benefit of the incumbency of Master Erasmus, illustrious and enlightened namesake, still, truth to tell, some of the old leaven was even yet supposed to be at work. The place had, in fact, an ill name, and though popish miracles had ceased to electrify its denizens, spells and charms, operating by a no less wondrous agency, were said to have taken their place. Warlocks and other unholy subjects of Satan were reported to make its wild recesses their favourite rendezvous, and that to an extent which eventually attracted the notice of no less a personage than the sagacious Matthew Hopkins himself, witch-finder-general to the British government. A great portion of the frith, or fright as the name was then, and is still pronounced, had formerly been a chase, with rights of free warren, etc., appertaining to the archbishops of the province. Since the Reformation, however, it had been disparked, 
and when master thomas marsh and his man ralph entered upon its confines the open greensward exhibited a lively scene sufficiently explanatory of certain sounds that had already reached their ears while yet within the sylvan screen which concealed their origin it was fair day booths stalls and all the rude paraphernalia of an assembly that then met as much for the purposes of traffic as festivity were scattered irregularly over the turf peddlers with their packs horse croupers pig merchants itinerant vendors of crockery and cutlery wandered promiscuously among the mingled groups exposing their several wares and commodities and soliciting custom on one side was the gaudy riband making its mute appeal to rustic gallantry on the other the delicious brandy ball and alluring lollipop compounded after the most approved receipt in the true gentlewoman's garland and raising the waters in the mouth of many an expectant urchin nor were rural sports wanting to those whom pleasure rather than business had drawn from their humble homes here was the tall and slippery pole glittering in its grease and crowned with the ample cheese that mocked the hopes of the discomfited climber there the fugitive pippin swimming in water not of the purest and bobbing from the expanded lips of the juvenile tantalus in this quarter the ear was pierced by squeaks from some beleaguered porker whisking his well-soaped tail from the grasp of one already in fancy his captor in that the eye rested with undisguised delight upon the grimaces of grinning candidates for the honours of the horse-collar all was fun frolic courtship junketing and jollity maid marian indeed with her lieges robin hood scarlet and little john was wanting friar tuck was absent even the hobby-horse had disappeared but the agile morris dancers yet were there and jingled their bells merrily among stalls well stored with gingerbread tops whips whistles and all those noisy instruments of domestic torture in which scenes like these are even now so fertile had i a foe whom i held at deadliest feud i would entice his favourite child to a fair and buy him a whistle and a penny trumpet in one corner of the green a little apart from the thickest of the throng stood a small square stage nearly level with the chins of the spectators whose repeated bursts of laughter seemed to intimate the presence of something more than usually amusing the platform was divided into two unequal portions the smaller of which surrounded by curtains of a coarse canvas veiled from the eyes of the profane the penetralia of this movable temple of aesculapius for such it was within its interior and secure from vulgar curiosity the quacksalver had hitherto kept himself ensconced occupied no doubt in the preparation and arrangement of that wonderful panacea which was hereafter to shed the blessings of health among the admiring crowd meanwhile his attendant jack pudding was busily employed on the proscenium doing his best to attract attention 
by a practical facetiousness which took wonderfully with the spectators interspersing it with the melodious notes of a huge cow's horn the fellow's costume varied but little in character from that in which the late alas that we should have to write the word late mr joseph grimaldi was accustomed to present himself before a generous and enlightened public the principal difference consisted in this that the upper garment was a long white tunic of a coarse linen surmounted by a caricature of the ruff then fast falling into disuse and was secured from the throat downwards by a single row of broad white metal buttons and his legs were cased in loose wide trousers of the same material while his sleeves prolonged to a most disproportionate extent descended far below the fingers and acted as flappers in the somersets and caracals with which he diversified and enlightened his antics consummate impudence not altogether unmixed with a certain sly humour sparkled in his eye through the chalk and ochre with which his features were plentifully bedaubed and especially displayed itself in a succession of jokes the coarseness of which did not seem to detract from their merit in the eyes of his applauding audience. End of section 10